for our sponsor, Dog Overboard Adamstown, the fun and healthy place for dogs. Pet Chat on your pet-friendly radio station, 2NURFM 103.7. Oh, hello, hello. Yes, Cheryl Shaw, welcome to you, <laughs> David Tabret, and of course, it's Charlie Hello, here. How are you both? Very good. Very well, thank yes. you. We've got some exciting topics coming up. Now, David, mm. quickly, last week we were going to cover Red Eye, but we never oh, got to it. Look, I'm, I'm itching for this one. <laughs> Frothing at the mouth, so I've been, I've been waiting for a week. Yeah, we've all been waiting I've too. been practising. Good stuff. So we're going to find mm. out about Red Eye mainly in our dogs. In dogs, yeah. And Cheryl, what are we chatting about today? The little Mexican walking fish, the axolotl. Oh, they're so interesting, aren't they? Yeah, a bit oh, weird fantastic. looking. Now, Cheryl Shaw, we're looking at axolotls now. They've got lots of different names, don't they? They have, and you hear them, you hear them um, call lots of different things as well. Some people think they look weird. Some, things, some people think they look a little bit alien, but they're a really unusual pet. Um, it's one of those pets that if you're wanting something that's active, it's not for you because they're pretty sedentary. They come alive at night time. That's their time. So um, these strange dragon-looking creatures, they're not actually fish. They're actually an amphibian, and they originated in central Mexico, and that's why they are sometimes referred to as a Mexican wa walking fish. Um, they're pretty hardy, but they don't have scales like fish. They actually have skin. So it's really important not to touch them or handle them too much because you can actually um, irritate their skin or mark their skin. And if you do that, they're really um, susceptible to getting an in infection and that way um, you, you, you're going to run into a little bit of trouble. So they're not something that you want to be touching or poking at. You do need to take them out of their little enclosure or their tank when um, you're cleaning them out. So just a soft net or something that you can scoop them out rather than handling them too much. If you do notice anything with them, like a film of white on their tail or head, it's really important to treat that because that, that's a white spot and you can get some remedy to quickly um, rectify that. So keeping their water clean is important to helping their health. Um, for optimum health, they need to have plenty of room to swim and exercise um, and a cover on top of their tank because sometimes, Sarah, they'll actually get out of their tank and that would be a little bit creepy. <laughs> <laughs> but you might want to hang out with them because they can oh. be out of water for quite a while, can't they? Not too long. Oh, yeah, because they're in the they're in that infantile new, um, stage, so they're not really a salamander at that time. So they do need water. Um, they don't have any eyelids, which is rather interesting. And so because they Ooh. don't have any eyelids, we really shouldn't put them in um, a lighted area. So they prefer a, you know, a darker corner of your house. So if you've got mm. a little space that's a little bit dark and you're wanting to put a tank in, that would be ideal just to protect their eyes. How do we know when they're asleep, Cheryl? So we don't want to talk to them if they're asleep, but they've got their eyes open all the okay, time. Okay, so just avoid talking to them during the day <laughs> and at night time when they're active because they're nocturnal, you'll be able to they, have quite um, a good conversation. They only understand you if you speak Spanish. Oh, okay. Mm. Oh, there you okay. go. So, yes, a new language might have to be learnt to have one of these. Mm. Why not? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, keeping them, keeping them nice and healthy outside of light is ideal. When you're also setting up your tank, it's pretty inexpensive to keep these little pets. It's best to put either sand or um, large pebbles because if you use gravel or small pebbles, when they're feeding, they'll actually ingest these and that can become quite a problem. So, you know, you want to avoid them eating anything that um, is going to get stuck in their tummies. Um, they are carnivorous and they enjoy a range of foods. So keeping them um, with a balanced diet is really important. And you can get lots of prepared, um, you know, tablets and, and pellets 
for them at your pet shops, but they can also eat some insects and meat. Their lifespan depends on how well you keep them, but they can live up to 20 years. Majority of them live around 10 to 15 years. As they mature, their metabolism slows down, so they don't require so much oxygen. So it's really one of those things you don't then have to have um, filtration and things like that in, um, in your tank. They are quite weird, but the most, in, oh, I think, incredible thing about them is they're able to regenerate body parts. So if they lose a limb, they can actually heal and grow that limb back. So even parts that's of their amazing. head. It is, isn't it? Yeah. So if you're looking for something that's a little bit interesting, a little bit different, a bit weird, one of these axolotls yep. might be ideal. I've had a bit of experience with axolotls over the years, and um, they come in... Certainly, some of them are quite big, yes. And uh, you know, obviously, they start off small. They're, so they're characteristically to look at them. It's kind of, as you were saying, weird, a little bit off-putting because of their external gills. And um, I think that's what really kind of scares people. Gives them that. What did you say? Dragon look. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they're f very curious creatures, and uh, you know, uh, the ones that I've seen. I guess coming back to your point about the fungal diseases on the skin, that's really been the the thing that's a concern so um, anytime that is a an issue then we look at certainly some treatments might be needed up front but also reviewing the whole of the environment that they're in because uh, it's might be an injury that starts it but it'll be a result of how the environment's set up that predisposes them to developing a fungal infection but um, yeah they're fascinating little creatures and I think more and more people are seeing them rather than just having fish they're having a tank with a terrarium or, or so on, then they'll often uh, will see axolotls. Yeah. And the life expectancy is really good as well, so I didn't realise mm. they lived quite that long. Mm. I had one for 17 years, Irving. So mm. how do you go to the fish and hello to the axolotls? <laughs> huh? yep. There you go, I'll be perfect. Okay, let's, <laughs> let, let's go now. Uh, Sue, uh, sorry, Joy from Walls End has come back. Uh, Joy, a question about your cat for Dr David Tabret. Oh, where is she? Hi, Joy. Hello, how are <laughs> you? Hello, good. Glad we could grab Yay. you. So you've got a problem with your cat urinating outside its litter not, No, not urinating, defecating. Ah, okay. Um, That's she's interesting. She's nine months old. She's been fine. I've had her since she was about five weeks old. Yep. Now she's... Um, I, did, I did have her in the, her litter tray in the laundry... Now, when she got a bit older, I thought, oh, well, she can go through to the garage. So I put it in there, and she was using it. And the next minute I found, she was going over the other side of the car and all over the garage floor, she was doing it. Okay. All right. So I thought, well, that's no good. So I brought it back inside again. Yes. And I've got the litter tray in the laundry, and yep. the door's always open, like, into the unit. And then um, she started doing it over on the tiles near the front door. Hmm. Okay. I'll put another litter tray there. Excellent. Yes. Sometimes she does it in that, but every day she's doing it on the tiles or just on the bit of carpet near the tiles. I've looked up online, you know, and it says, you know, maybe there's something ill wrong with them, and I thought I seem so silly going to the vet and saying, what can I do? Oh, you'd be surprised. I mean, it's not, not that uncommon a problem, actually, with cats. Um, oh, dear. And so whenever we, we tackle this subject, I think we always need to make sure there is no medical problem. Have you actually observed her um, going to use a litter tray or 
going to one of these other spots? Yeah, she'll start scratching on the tiles before she okay. does it. And I'll so, try and grab her and you know, put her in the litter, but she hops out again. Does she? Okay. Well, um, that's really important because sometimes I find people say, oh, they won't use the litter tray, and then we look at it and go, well, it's got really high sides and maybe she can't climb into it. Yeah, or no, she's, you know, it's the same litter tray I've had since she was a kitten, you know, the same size, yes. and I've started putting liners in them now, which is a lot better. It for makes me it a with bit easier. Cleaning and stuff. I change litter, I always use crystals. Yes. And then I had some clumping, and I didn't like that trying to get rid of it. So, but I did put the clumping in one of them, and uh, but she's weighing in it okay. Okay, well that's really interesting. Um, interesting means probably a little more difficult to solve, but <laughs> but um, there's a couple of rules now. Have you only got the one cat? Yes, I have. Okay, very important. So the general rule is one litter tray per cat plus one. So if you have one cat, it's two trays. If you have two cats, three yes, trays and I've so on. I've got the two trays. Okay. And in your scenario, I would even say let's add a few other litter trays as well. Um, just to give her plenty of opportunity. The other thing would be is to use different litters in different trays. Okay. Yeah, I've tried that. Yes. The clumping in one and the... Um and the, the crystals. crystals in the other one. Yeah, I would and persist and with that. And I've got that. one just inside the front door on the tiles, and that's where she'll, she'll do it next to it. Yeah, okay. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, so we have number of trays, different litters, and then also looking for timing. So if there's times of day where she's more frequently going to go to the toilet, then just try to make sure there's litter trays nearby or you're around so that we don't establish a habit that yeah. she is going to go other otherwise, okay? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, it sounds like you've covered off most of the bases. So now when you get to that stage, then um, it might require a bit more in the way of behaviour modification. And one of the things could be looking at and reviewing any causes of stress like in the environment, other cats around, dogs, motor cars. I think she doesn't go outside. She would be aware of what's outside. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, and particularly yeah. if there's another cat that comes into the yard, th she yeah. would be able to smell them. Yeah, there's no other cats in this area at all. I'm in like a Good. retirement village thing, oh, and there's okay. no other cats. You know, we're in a gated community. Yeah. But, but you know, she she was fine yeah. up until the last six yeah. weeks. Yeah, I'm. There's two things I would suggest. One is you need to get a health check, and I know you said, oh, it seems a bit strange to go and do it. It's, <laughs> it's absolutely not, absolutely not. We do it all the time. Uh, vets are constantly going to review these sort of scenarios because, see, what happens is if we don't get it fixed, this becomes a bigger, bigger problem, yeah. and eventually you get to the stage where you say, you know what, I've got to, she's got to go somewhere or... Well, I, that's, I you know, I mean, I'm elderly and I got it for company, and yeah. I think it's... She's just getting too, and I, I love her dearly, but she's just getting too much for me, you know? Yeah, to do all of that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. You've got to get this fixed. And um, <laughs> I think you. there's a couple of products that we use, but really we've got to put all this together in behaviour modification. Fell away spray is very useful, um, but I'd be looking for any other causes. So I think a visit to the vet, first of all, because you really need to tick off a few of those things. Um, and hopefully they can get to the bottom of it, no pun intended, but it's actually, yeah. it might take a little bit of time, but you need to start now, and I know, yeah. you've, I know you've already done a lot, but we need to go to the next, we need to go to stage two, phase two. Okay. 
All right. All right. The best of luck with it, Joy. Yeah, we'll, we'll be thinking of you. Now, we've got Paul from Lake Haven. Paul, a very difficult one. Our condolences. Your partner of 40 years has recently passed away, and your dog is, is also grieving and, and looking for her. Yes, that's right. And I, I didn't know this would happen, although I suspected as much. Um, mm. She's been with us for 17 years since she was eight weeks old. Um, she's definitely part of the family. I've noticed of late when I brought his ashes home even, um, she'll sit at his ashes and just look at them. Um, she, oh. um, it's really quite... And she roams from room to room. Um, I've heard her at night time whimpering. Um, it took her a, a week or two to even sit on his chair, and when she did, she was licking it all over. And I don't know whether that was to to maybe er, er, eradicate his smell. I changed the linen on our bed several times. I've sprayed it with Febreze because someone said she might be still smelling him around the house. But having said that, um, I've just packed up all his clothes, so which was a difficult thing for me. But she saw that it was difficult for me. And, uh, and and was right under my feet most of the day. But I'm just wondering, should I, will it pass? Uh, I guess it will, like all of us, but uh, she's suffering so badly. It's just awful. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like just seeing that behaviour coming back at you, reflected at you, and I, I think just reminds you of that grief, which makes it doubly difficult for, for you as well. Um, I, it's interesting with pets that, you know, we talk about this kind of behaviour and even if you're, um, you know, in cases of divorce when couples separate and pets uh, often behave in a similar way. So we, we come across this kind of problem frequently and I think there's a couple of things and you've touched on through just outlining what the scenarios are, um, particularly with the age um, the, you know, there's an established yeah, established habits and routines, and you talked about smells and and dogs obviously are much more sensitive. I mean, their scent receptors. The it's interesting. The area of um, scent receptors in their nose is like a thousand times bigger than uh, what humans have. So they're so much more sensitive to detecting uh, smells and to reacting and that's connecting and I think oftentimes the question comes to me is it is it an emotion that they're f going through and feeling and I I think it, it may be we just don't know because that's really subjective but what we do know mm. is that their behavior is reflective of either those habits and the sense of loss and mm. your habits change the other thing that often happens though is that her behavior would reflect your behaviour. They actually, they would be, she would be taking her cues from you as well. And I would Im imagine that a lot of what you're seeing is actually your behaviour coming, reflecting back to you, but just obviously in a different species, so you, it looks more um, new to you uh, because you're yeah. seeing it in, I'm going to say, someone else, in a dog. Um, well, yeah. um, when I... Uh, and the last few weeks has been difficult. Um, and as you can imagine, I've lived um, two thirds of my life with this man, and um, um, and uh, you know a third of my life with Bella. Twenty, you know, yeah. seventeen years. Yes, yeah. And and I've been 
openly weeping and he uh, all around the house is things that remind me of him um i think the most poignant was when i picked up his ashes and yeah. looked at his photo and thought you're in there and but she and so i was looking at the ashes too but then she came and sat there quite quite mesmerized um, someone said, oh, don't be silly. She's just mimicking what you were doing. Well, I'm not so sure. I think, um, and when I'm grieving, she comes over and puts a paw on my leg and she's very in tune to us. Um, mm-hmm. Even so far as I have diabetes mellitus and I have insulin, when I go wee-wee, she follows me in, smells, and then will come back and tell me if my... Uh, blood sugar levels are high. She's very in tune with wow. me. Dogs, and... are, dogs are so clever. Yes, they are. absolutely. And, you know, they, the thing I was going to mention too is that it, this, you mentioned, Paul, this will pass and it, it will. And it's just, it's part of the process. And um, I think dogs do see that sense of loss and they will establish new habits and new patterns. And there is actually a medication that can be helpful in that it's actually... Um, a pheromone that you plug into the wall in a PowerPoint. It's called DAP, dog appeasing yes, yes. pheromone, and it's actually quite good at calming dogs down. And I know that we're not talking about a hyper-stimulated dog, but I think in terms of bringing a little bit of balance back, and uh, it's worth having a chat to your vet about that. Um, DAP comes as a as this plug-in pheromone, and it really does help dogs that are going through times of anxiety or any kind of stresses like you're talking about. Um, mm. You know, you 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 would go through a process and need support and so on. Does your dog do need that? Yes, they do, and so that's a way. And you're there for her, and um, maybe maybe you need to add add in some DAP as well. And it look just even on a short term, I think it'd be useful. Yeah, so. thinking of you both, Paul, and I, I'm glad that you've got your pooch there during this time as mm. well because they are an amazing Great comfort. companions. They certainly are. It's Pet Chat and we're taking your calls on 49216216 and we're going to go to another call now. Hello, are you there? No, nope, looks like they've gone too. Well, we've got a free line, so, oh, hang on. Are they? Hello, are you calling for Pet Chat? G'day. How you going? Yes, well, thanks. I think you've got your radio on. Could you turn it down? And are you, have oh, you got sorry. a question for David today? I usually do. Have you got a question for David today? Yes, I do. Steve, okay, you've, you've got an issue with your pigeon. No, I don't. But I wanted to let David know that um, it's not here yet. There's a rotor virus that's been introduced mm. in Western Australia. I don't know if you're aware. I haven't seen anything come across. Uh, there's a couple of groups that I subscribe to for um, public health and for uh, what, um, large medicine problems. So what's what's the nature of the problem with the pigeons then? Mine are okay. Yes. The, the race club in my area has decided not to race oh. the birds. Okay. Um, so it's that serious. This, this virus um, has reached the central coast. Oh, okay. And mm. it wipes out, like, people that have pigeons, like, you know, they have the same pets and they go and visit, etc., etc. Yeah. Um, it is 90 to 100% 
losses in about two days. Oh, my goodness. Oh it affects the liver, apparently. Yes. Um, yeah. I don't know if you know the main avian vets, uh, one in Victoria, one in Sydney. Yeah, well, there's a number. Yeah, number around enough. Yep, that's that information, particularly with pigeons. Yes, um, and uh, as I said, there's a number of groups. I hadn't heard anything recently, but um, as you said, it's it can spread pretty quickly and. With those sort of losses, uh, it sounds like the wise course to suspend races for the moment and hopefully... Um well, even even pet pigeons, mate. I don't know mm. if people that just have pet birds, you know, they're pretty and they look good in the garden and et cetera, et cetera. Yes, um, so they need to be aware that it's out there. Well, it affects them yeah. as well. Absolutely. We'll, we'll try and good get advice. some more info about that so we can... Put that up on our Facebook page as well. But that's, yeah, very interesting. Now, Steve from Barnsley just phoned in talking about the pigeon virus. Mm. Um, that I hadn't has seen pretty it. high numbers at the that's moment. That's right, yeah, and was some good info. But I hadn't seen it, so I quickly um, jumped onto a couple of sites and followed up, uh, which um, Steve was suggesting, some of the some more senior bird vets. And there's some good information now that I can see is that about a year ago this first appeared in WA, but they actually didn't diagnose the cause. And then it turned up about Christmas in Victoria. Some extensive testing, a lot of work to try and identify, and have found it that it was a, a type A rotavirus. And so um, when they went back and looked at the disease in WA, they found that it was the same one. Uh, there are vaccines in Australia and overseas for rotavirus, and they've been tested. Unfortunately, none of them actually protect against this particular one. Oh. Yeah. So there is there is work to develop a vaccine, and considering the disease has really been identified, like you know, in the last six months, um, they're working very quickly. But at this stage, it looks like it might not be available till next year, 2018. So that's unfortunate. Now the problems and and steve alluded to this was that how quickly it comes on and develops and so on there's a couple of key problems here one is that it has an incubation period of three to five days and what that means is that you get infected or the pigeon gets infected it doesn't actually show up disease until three days later okay so you know you could kind of like a common cold you could actually move your pigeon around and this is why it's such a good idea like the precautions that he has talked about with the clubs suspending um, racing um, because your bird could be look well and you so on know. and be in, in the loft yeah. yep. and have picked up the infection. And then what happens is once they actually start, they get diarrhoea and vomiting, they start dying within 12 hours. Wow. And it usually runs for about seven days. And um, at this stage, the lofts in uh, Melbourne have had average deaths of about 22%. In Sydney, it's been up to 50%. Wow, okay. The, now, there's more problems with this, is that surviving birds have been shown to be carriers, which means that they can then re-excrete the virus. How long are they infectious for then, or is it forever? Uh, well, it depends, obviously, on how um, long we've tested them. Because it's only been a recent yes, disease, we yes. only know over the last six months or so. Now, the first ones they've tested have shown up to 9 to 12 weeks and that these shed droppings are actually infectious. Um, There was also... um, It looks like it seems to settle down after that. Okay. So in the areas that there's been previous outbreaks six months ago, 
they've settled down. So maybe it only sheds for a short time. Um, there are some factors that people could look at in terms of like how they maintain their pigeon lofts. And as Steve said, also, if you've got pet birds, and a lot of people will have aviaries and they might have a pigeon in there, um, they need to be aware. No pigeon play dates. No pigeon moment. play dates. It's thought that there's actually uh, some wild birds, some doves, and it says also flies, so this is going to be difficult, may transmit the virus. Um, but to date, only free-flying birds that have detected is feral pigeons. So they just haven't had an opportunity to test that many. Unfortunately, there's really no good treatments. Um, so at this well, stage, I think the keeping your birds isolated is the best approach. Thank you for following up with us, David. Yes. And, and Steve, thank you for bringing it to our attention. Now, we promised red eye last week, mm. Dr. David Tabrit, and we didn't get to it. The phones were so busy. So we're going to look at it today. I, I had to rush to catch a plane. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so one of, dealing with eyes is often uh, a little bit scary, complicated, what's going on, um, because, you know, it's all there to see, but we're just got to work out the eye only has so many ways of responding okay so no matter what the cause there's only so many ways it can respond and so we classify these things as is it a blind eye is it a blue eye or is it red and so redness is referring to usually uh, the color of the tissue around the eye so the normal whites of the eye become red or the inside the eyelids now sometimes there are diseases outside the eyelids which can cause some red eye, um, some skin diseases and so on. And um, we won't go into those, but if we just focus on what causes a red eye. So red means that there's increased blood flow into that area. So there's inflammation. Just by definition, we can say that there's inflammation in the area. Whether there's an infection or not will depend on a few other factors. We divide up where the problem is occurring in the eye based on the anatomy. So the very surface of the eye, the clear surface of the eye is called the cornea and it's surprisingly thick. It's got a number of layers. Um, but it's possible for that cornea, for the surface layers, just to be eroded away or perhaps there's been a scratch or, you know, the cat's flicked the dog with the claw or uh, we've got a bit of dust in there and the third eyelid that sits, sits down in the corner of the eye comes up and brushes that across. It's like having a gravel on your windscreen and the windscreen mm. wipers on. Okay, it's going to cause some damage. So anytime we get dogs with grass seeds or dust in their eyes, sometimes it can actually cause abrasions to the surface of the eye. The other things I have seen is chemical burns to the surface of the eye. Oh. So exposure to volatile chemicals. Uh, dogs can actually develop um, abrasions on the surface of the eye and I have seen sometimes where people have actually put stuff in the eye inadvertently and said oh we've caused a problem if we go uh, around the eye the white part of the eye that's called the conjunctiva which lines the eyelids and the surface of the eye the ball uh, and when that gets inflamed that could be due to an infection or it could be due to allergies that's another cause so again there's a couple of different ways we look at testing that one of the things we'll do is put some dye into the eye and we look at it because the dye will actually stick to any of the um, lining that is uh, any of the cells that are damaged and once we actually look at that we can say ah there's the problem we can assess with the use of uh, microscopes and special lights we can assess how deep that is 
Now, some of those require surgery, but most of them don't. Most of them require medication put into the eye. Sometimes we do what's called a third eyelid flap where we suture the eyelid up. Believe it or not, we actually use uh, contact lenses. Really? Yeah, they work really, really well. So it could be bacterial, it could be trauma. Sometimes in cats we'll see viruses. Uh, And the other thing I mentioned is chemicals. Anytime you see a red eye, get to your vet. It is an emergency and they may do one of those things and hopefully get them back on track really quickly. You are a wealth of information, aren't you? I try. You (laughs) certainly are. Really interesting stuff. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. I know it's difficult, but... Time to say mm. goodbye. Cheryl Shaw, Dr. David Tabret, thank you both for Thanks, coming Charlie. in as always. Thank you. Pet Chat, it is back same time next week. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.